brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, you cool cats and kittens from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and few things are as obvious as the uncomfortable reality that our world is run by a confusing array of interlocking three-letter agencies, fraternal brotherhoods, military contractors, intelligence operations, globalist think tanks, private security firms, and secret societies, because we see their fingerprints on damn near all the major moves made on the global chessboard. Coups, assassinations, insurgencies, false flags, drone strikes, secret armies, revolutions, resource plunders, propaganda, and all the rest of it are clearly derived from these viper dens and rat nests of this nefarious nexus, but yet they continue to do what they do, shaping the world in their own backwards image with very little resistance or consequence. And though it sometimes gets complex and confusing, nobody untangles these interwoven threads on the big conspiracy cardigan better than our returning guest recluse of the Vice Up View blog. He's been here twice before, schooling us on Epstein, Nexium, intelligence blackmail operations, Nazi occultism, deep state magic, and the infamous story of the Nine. Today we are celebrating the release of his first published book, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History. It's a collection of intriguing essays from both him and his co-author, Frank Zero. I know I'm psyched, and it is such a treat to have him back, breaking down these little-known aspects of history and the strange groups that have been running these international operations, so let's get into it. The parapolitical poster, the strange tales teller, and the deep politics exposer, my friend and yours, Recluse. Welcome back, man. Thanks, Greg, and thanks for having me back on. Of course, of course. I love the book, on point as always. Big congratulations on getting it finished. Not an easy thing to do. And I also understand the desire to not use your real name on stuff like this, but should we be calling you S. William Snyder or Steven Snyder now? I'm seeing very little consistency across the platforms, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just kind of seems like whoever's more comfortable with what. But Steven's <laughs> fine. I kind of use the S. William thing as a tribute to my dad, who was another William, since he was kind of the one who inspired me to get into this type of research. Mm. And I always kind of like those, you know, first name, period, middle name type names <laughs> for authors, too. So. Right on. Yes. Very cool. Very cool. And 
So to dive into the book itself, as you say in the intro, America is cursed. It was effectively built on Indian burial ground. And you note that this is nothing new. Controlling power centers, Christians taking over pagan sites, the Nazis thinking they could retake castles and lands conquered by King Arthur for an energetic boost. But you say, so too were the centers of political and economic power built on the bones of those who flourished in pre-colonial America. And that's really well written. But how do you think that America today is affected by that unsavory foundation? We tend to ignore it, but it probably has some pretty relevant implications, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's such a bloodstained history in general, certainly with the expansion into the new world, the genocide against the Native Americans, the plagues, and so on and so forth. And I mean, even then, you know, there were strange happenings here even before the colonists showed up. I mean, of course, of late, I've been looking a lot at all the stuff in my own kind of region of the world here in Appalachia with the Adena and the Hopewell. And I mean, this was a whole area that Kenneth Grant had believed was a kind of window area, sort of opening into the abyss and his system, which would lead into the nightside tree of life, where the Lovecraftian space gods were. And you sort of have these tribes there, the Hopewell, the Adena. In the case of the Hopewell, there were signs that they used scrying stones, somewhat akin to John D or something to that effect. So, you know, there's already the possibility that there had been breaches, so to speak, in this whole continent, you know, well before the colonists got here. And, you know, I think increasingly it seems evident that these portals, whatever you want to call them, were probably reopened with much <laughs> vigor going into the Cold War with a lot of the different, you know, MK Ultra artichoke type stuff that was going on. So, yeah, I mean, all of this plays into the history of this land and just, you know, the way so much of this stuff is coordinated, it seems like to harness the power of the very geography of this place of just, you know, it's peculiar history. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is all great context. And so a big part of this book goes deep into the Mellon family. And I love this kind of stuff, weighing the influence of one elite family or network and seeing just how many fingers they have and how many different pies and we've heard breakdowns of elite families like Rockefeller, Rothschild, and Morgan, but you write that the Mellon family has remained one of the wealthiest and most influential dynasties of the last century. Can you walk people through what it is they built their empire on and why they're still influential when some of the other big families, it seems like their influence has waned? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, like a lot of the, you know, kind of storied American dynasties, they really rose to prominence. In the aftermath of the Civil War, the kind of patriarch was considered to be Judge Thomas Mellon. The whole family, their kind of power center was long based around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. After the Civil War, Judge Thomas had founded the Mellon Bank, which by 1900 had become the largest financial institution in the United States outside of New York City. So, you know, the kind of banking industry was what really laid the foundation for the family fortunes, but they spread into a lot of different industries, Alcoa, coppers, and probably most notable Gulf oil, which was really fortuitous. They got into that right at really the onset of the 20th century. And, you know, obviously the use of oil would just explode right around this time as the automobile became more and more prominent. And of course, going into the world wars, it was so instrumental to national defense and that really solidified the, you know, economic prowess of the family. 
in that sense, at least you could maybe draw some parallels to the Rockefeller family, though a bit of a reverse. You know, the Mellons made their money in banking and then kind of got into oil. The Rockefellers did the reverse, but whatever. But they had become, you know, essentially just a major powerhouse by the early 20th century. And that was when you saw one of the more noteworthy or notorious members, depending upon one's point of view. And that would be Anthony Mellon, the longstanding secretary of the Treasury. A post that he held from 1920, I believe, to about 1932. He was there through Harding, through Coolidge, through Hoover. And he gets credit sometimes for the Roaring Twenties, blamed sometimes for the stock market crash in 1929. There's a lot of you know dispute as to how much infamy he should deserve, but that's more of a debate for economists. But <laughs> the other big kind of thing that happened for the Mellons going into the World War II era was that they were really... There, at the onset of the emergence of a first, you know, kind of attempt to create a central intelligence group for the United States, and that was the Office of Strategic Services. There were plenty of Mellons in there. Andrew Mellon's son, Paul Mellon, was in the OSS, and there were quite a few in-laws as well. I mean, all said and done, there were at least probably half a dozen or so family members and assorted hanger-ons that ended up in the OSS. And this marked the beginning of a long-standing relationship with the U.S. intelligence community that the families probably continued up to this very day. Hmm. Wow, wow, yes. Seems like a tale as old as time to some degree. But for our listeners here, it seems like William Mellon Hitchcock would be one of the most interesting members on that family tree. Can you tell us a little bit about him specifically? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Billy is apparently known by the help yeah, he had quite a decade there in the 1960s. It started out with the shenanigans in the UK with Profumo. He was the roommate for the infamous private detective Thomas Corbley. They were flatmates. Depending upon what sorts you look at, they were either throwing quote-unquote wild parties or orgies out of this particular flat. They, you know, befriend Stephen Ward, who had the sex ring that would later be exposed by the Profumo scandal. In 1963, and Mr. Billy and Corbelly appear to have played a part in some of the, I guess, palace intrigues or whatever you want to call it surrounding Harold Macmillan, then the sitting prime minister. Then in 1963, just as that scandal is starting to blow up, Hitchcock returns to the United States and kind of begins the second phase of his 60s journey where he became a major sponsor, effectively, of LSD. First, he set up Timothy Leary at the Hitchcock Estate at Millbrook, New York, and that became kind of a psychedelic center, I guess. Leary and company were entrenched there from 63, I think, to about 67, and a lot of other strange characters passed through the doors during the time. Hitchcock was living in a bungalow on the grounds of the estate. He did apparently frequently hobnob with Leary and company. He took some acid with them, but he never really experienced a spiritual moment more profound than wondering how he could make more money on the stock market reportedly. So it's definitely led to a bit of a mystery why exactly he was sponsoring all of this in the first place. It was actually his sister, Peggy Hitchcock, who had gotten him involved with Leary. I think at one point she had even been having an affair with him or something to that effect. But yeah, you know, you have all this craziness. Eventually, Mr. Billy had decided to evict Leary from Millbrook, but there apparently weren't that many hard feelings because he, I guess, gave him a couple of grand on the way out so he could get reestablished elsewhere. So anyway, Mr. Billy ends up relocating to California around 1967, 
He's got a couple of chemists with him. He starts making some LSD. He hooks up with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love to distribute it. And by the end of the decade, they have effectively become the largest LSD suppliers in the entire country. And that was right around the time that Mr. Billy started to have some legal problems, which possibly went into one of his other ventures at the time. And that was a gaming conglomerate known as Resorts International. It had its origins in a company called the Mary Carter Payton Company. There's been a lot of suspicion that it had been used by the CIA during the whole Bay of Pigs thing. One of the early stockholders was the Republican governor of New York, Thomas Dewey. He was a good friend of the Dulles brothers. Alan Dulles and John Foster had both heavily backed his campaigns for the presidency in 48 and 44. So you had that whole thing. And then, of course, the headquarters for Mary Carter ended up being in Tampa, which just happened to be the base of operations, so to speak, for Santos Traficante, the Florida Don, who was using all those anti-Castro Cubans as muscle for his own, you know, kind of organized crime thing at the same time. So there are all those connections. Of course, Resorts decided to set up shop as a gaming interest in the Bahamas in around 65. They bought up Paradise Island. And interestingly, Paradise Island had originally had been Hog Island. It was turned into Paradise Island by a guy named Huntington Hartford, who had actually known Mr. Billy and all these other guys in the UK. He was kind of tied up with the Perfumo and uh, Fair and Stephen Ward and all that craziness as well. It's kind of a strange thing about resorts. You see so many guys that were involved with Perfumo who turn up in this case as well. But anyway, you know, you got resorts set up there. You've got these kind of Mirlansky guys who were tied into the casino on the mob standpoint. There's also these ties to the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, they basically set up one of the first corporate private intelligence companies with Intertel, which was wholly owned subsidiary of Resorts International. It's got a bunch of ex, you know, NSA, FBI, CIA types in it. And then, of course, the CIA itself used resorts operationally for some unknown purpose in 72 or 73. So, I mean, this is a really just, you know, powerful company. I mean, it was really kind of a middle ground between organized crime and the U.S. intelligence community. Eventually also received a curious CEO in the 1980s called Donald J. Trump. <laughs> but Mr. Hitchcock was the biggest investor in Resorts International, pumped almost $5 million into the company. Eventually, he had become disturbed, I guess, with how the shares were being managed by his bank, Castle Bank and Trust, which was also run by an old OSS hand, Paul Hellowell, who had essentially become the CIA's banker in the Caribbean for the you know, different drug trafficking and arms trafficking, that kind of thing. So anyway, yeah, there was an IRS investigation going on called Tradewinds that was trying to figure out, you know, all the mechanisms that the mafia was using in the Caribbean. Somebody had an axe to grind with Mr. Billy. His name got leaked, and that did cause a couple of problems. It kind of tipped off the whole resorts thing. Might have led to some embarrassing moments, such as the fact that Richard Nixon, the sitting president, was probably getting a cut of the skim off of the toll bridge leading up to the island. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just some really incredible figures. I mean, just show up and all of that. And just really throughout the 60s, it's just insane all of the things that Hitchcock was tied up in in that one decade. <laughs> Yeah, I really loved reading that section. And the history is definitely interesting. You cover a lot of intelligence operations and the propaganda campaigns that surround them. And just to kind of try to relate this to the current events that we're all dealing with, 
Gaslighting is a term that comes up a lot in the book, and I'm sure many of us have heard this in the context of Me Too or liberal millennial circles, but talk to us about not only the meaning of the word, but how it's actually been used by the puppet masters of that power pyramid against we the people, so they say. Maybe we're seeing a little bit of this with the COVID saga. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, very much the case. And, you know, I mean, another entity that we kind of get into in the book was the American Security Council, which, I mean, it was kind of the far right's answer to the Council on Foreign Relations, if you will, during much of the Cold War era. It was essentially a vast private intelligence operation, lots of military intelligence guys, some big CIA people involved in it and what have you. But, I mean, the big thing, though, with the ASC is just the incredible amount of influence it had on these, you know, kind of alternative cultures. One was the UFO community. And then, of course, another one was the conspiratorial rights, my kind of term for them. But I mean, most of the, you know, the common tropes were all used to the anti-UN stuff, the anti-IRS tropes, the anti-Federal Reserve, the anti-Rockefeller stuff. Almost all of this stuff has its origins with the American Security Council. And then in turn, it was disseminated through groups like the John Birch Society and the Liberty Lobby and so on and so forth. And to me, it's just really fascinating when you kind of look at that in context with some of the things that are going on now. I mean, you know, you've got like the whole one world broadcast that the World Health Organization was sponsoring. You've got, you know, Bill Gates coming out with the whole nano microchip thing, which is another longtime trope of this kind of stuff. And then, of course, you know, the famous or now, I guess, infamous picture of what the Rothschild heir and the spirit cooking lady in front of the 18th century painting of Satan summons his legion or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is pretty incredible trolling in a lot of ways, or at least it certainly comes off like that for the Alex Jones types of the world and what have you. And it's just really fascinating how when you kind of go back, I mean, these tropes have been just kind of disseminated for decades now. And it seems like very ever so often in these kind of crucial realignments of the world order, they start to really be played with a lot of force. I mean, it kind of reminds me again of the whole situation in 1991. You know, you've got Papa Bush out there making his whole new world order speech. You've got a kind of quasi-UN military thing in ancient Babylon, a.k.a. Iraq. It's all very symbolically loaded, to put it mildly. And it certainly seems like, you know, we're seeing a lot of these old war horses coming out once again for our current situation. Yeah, and it does make one wonder why. Like, what agenda would that serve for them to spread something like anti-Federal Reserve sentiment? Is it just controlled opposition? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's some of that. Of course, you know, it's especially baffling in the case of the ASC because the Rockefellers were actually sponsors of it, especially Nelson Rockefeller. And kind of alluded to before, they're also, you know, one of the major sources for the anti-Rockefellers type stuff. So yeah, it's kind of like the Rockefellers are basically sponsoring the propaganda that's targeting them in a sense. So you see a lot of those just strange undercurrents. But I mean, on the flip side of the coin, though, I mean, I do think there is a divide ultimately between these kind of, you know, this liberal internationalist clique, globalist clique, whatever you want to call it. And I think a more nationalist oriented group, you know, obviously the struggle has been going on for a while now, but 
It's certainly become, I think, more intense in the 21st century, beginning with the Bush two years. And yeah, I mean, now it's kind of hard to even keep a lid on it almost. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And since we're talking about the American Security Council, we can stick with them a little bit. But you have a great section about how they do seem to be connected to many of the big stories of ufology, like you kind of mentioned there. But I guess remind people about some of these connections in ufology, because when you relay all the big stories, all the buzzwords of kind of that older first phase of the whole little green men thing, a lot of it has their fingerprints on it. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Really, you can even go back to the Roswell incident. I mean, there were several noteworthy figures that have been linked to that for a year, most notably General Nathan Twinning, another alleged MJ-12 member and that type of thing. Curtis LeMay, who knew quite a few of the prominent figures linked to Roswell. So you kind of have that membership. And then other individuals like Arthur Radford, Admiral Arthur Radford, who was another big military poobah who had a lot of interest in the topic, who were also early founders of the ASC. And Radford also, interestingly, was also close to the guy who had founded NICAP, Cohen, I believe. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he had actually served under Radford in the Navy, I believe in the late 40s or something to that effect. And just in general, NICAP, which was the first, you know, really big civilian UFO outfit, there was just so much overlap with the ASC membership, and that would continue for years. In fact, I think by the 70s, even John Fisher, who was the official founder and longtime chairman of the ASC, was also on the board of NICAP. So, you know, you had all that. I mean, you had guys like Curtis LeMay and another ASC member, Barry Goldwater, who really kind of created the Hangar 19 mythos. A lot of these guys. You 18, know, I Teller, think, right? 18. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And then you had Edward Teller, who had kind of been an early sponsor of Bob Lazar and that just all the stuff with Area 51. I mean, they show up almost everywhere. And then kind of bizarrely, there was the big publishing house, the Regerny family, who had sponsored it and the publisher. And these were the guys who had first put out Jacques Villet's books, you know, Messengers of Deception and what have you, which I personally find to be very fascinating because, you know, obviously this presents a much, much more esoteric interpretation of the UFO phenomenon. It's not sticking to the whole nuts and bolts premise and what have you. It's going into much more of a mystical take on the whole subject. And, you know, I definitely find it to be quite fascinating that this came from the American Security Council. And it kind of shows the, I think, the sort of two different strands that have been kind of vying with each other within this field. You know, on the one hand, you've kind of got the Rockefeller initiatives with Lawrence and what have you, and that kind of took the whole nuts and bolts explanation and a generally positive space brothers were here to make environmental sustainability a thing and get rid of nuclear power versus, you know, the ASC, which kind of presents this kind of take where the one hand, they might also be fairies or demons from the Middle Ages, and they potentially have a much more hostile agenda with abductions and medical experimentation and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely just really fascinating how, I mean, they've played into this narrative and certainly with their ties to the Christian right as well. You do kind of wonder what exactly the ultimate agenda behind some of this was. Yes, yes. And you mentioned, of course, Hangar 18, Area 51 and Bob Lazar. These are some of the biggest stories. And Roswell, I took this from the book. You say that another 
AFC linkage to Roswell comes in the form of Colonel Philip J. Corso, whose book, The Day After Roswell, is one of the best-selling accounts ever of the alleged incident, of course. Corso was not himself a member of the ASC, but was involved with the bizarre order commonly referred to as the Sovereign Order of St. John. The Sovereign Order of St. John was in turn a member of the American Security Council's Coalition for Peace Through Strength. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, when you know all this, does it make you, I guess, skeptical of a guy like Corso? Do you think Roswell was spun up completely out of whole cloth or was it just tweaked to fit a narrative? Was it real at all? What do you think about some of this stuff? Well, I'm definitely very skeptical of Corso. Yeah, I've actually uncovered a lot of just crazy stuff about that whole Sovereign Order of St. John since I wrote that. Another guy involved with it was Cleve Baxter, the polygraph specialist who was kind of behind the whole communicating with plants with a polygraph machine. I know they wrote the book, The Secret Life of Plants, based on his quote-unquote research. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know that book. Crazy. Clive Baxter. Yeah, well, see, I've got access to his personal papers, and based on some of the stuff I found in there, it's almost certain to my mind that he was involved in Project Bluebird back in the day. But just in terms of the Order of St. John, it's just crazy some of the stuff in there. I mean, they had like an Oregon energy specialist involved with the group. They were trying to recruit Ingo Swan, the remote viewer, into the SOSJ. So, I mean, they had just a tremendous amount of overlap with this stuff, with Scientologists, with all this other crazy stuff. And this was just, you know, a fanatically right-wing group that was tied up with Christian identity and Christian dominionism and all of these other just really vile, racist ideologies. So, yeah, you know, you kind of look at these guys like this, hovering in the background of the UFO question, and really, for that matter, a lot of the remote viewing stuff that was going on in SRI and what have you, it definitely raises some very disturbing prospects. In terms of Roswell, I mean, I don't think that it was necessarily a pure psyop, but yeah, I think there was something else going on there other than a crashed UFO. I mean, I think probably the best explanation really has ultimately come from Chris Knowles. Mm. Effectively, something was summoned there. And yeah, when you just look at this bizarre occultic stuff, or quasi-occultic stuff with Oregon Energy and just some of the other ties the guys like the SOSJ group had, you know, that's a very tempting explanation for all of it. Right, right. And for people who don't remember Project Bluebird, it's basically synonymous or often talked about with Project Artichoke and, of course, all this stuff under the MKUltra umbrella. And maybe we should dive into MKUltra a little bit more, too, because you write about the transition from trying to crack and control individual minds to more mass mind control and social behavior manipulation. And that might all be coming to a serious head right now, too. But in the book, you write about the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology and the role they played in developing and testing these techniques for the CIA and the MKUltra cronies. What do you find most interesting about this area? And are you seeing parallels between the work they were doing then and the things we're experiencing culturally now? Oh, absolutely. Well, see, I mean, the big overlap was this guy called Frank Burnett. He was, you know, a Rhodes Scholar, the whole nine yards. In the 1950s, he was involved with these national war colleges. 
which was also something the early American Security Council had been tied up in. And essentially, they were trying to indoctrinate military officers in extreme anti-communism effectively. And one of the guys working with him in this capacity was Colonel James Monroe, who was a big figure in the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology, which essentially was the outfit that was providing a lot of the funding for the various MK Ultra projects. So Barnett and Monroe really hit it off. And then from there, Barnett had gone on to found another organization, the American Strategic Information Center which was uh, in turn involved in indoctrinating labor unions and what have you and anti-communism. And there's some heavy people, you know, involved in this group as well. I mean, you've got William Casey, the future director of the CIA. You've got a Bush family member, Frank Shakespeare, a guy who would have a big role with the Heritage Foundation and what have you. So, you know, you kind of have this, you know, potential linkage to MKUltra and psychological warfare that originally was being kind of employed in indoctrinating military officers, heads of labor unions. But I really think a lot of this was gradually incorporated into the broader propaganda that the American Security Council was disseminating. And that really goes into, you know, this alternative stuff that I was just talking about, you know, the conspiratorial rights stuff with the anti-UN troops and what have you, the UFOs and all that stuff. And Certainly, you know, when you look at what is happening now with the COVID stuff and just the insanity right now with all of the disinformation and the press and what have you, you know, this is very much, I think, in keeping with the legacy of this kind of research. And I mean, to kind of put this in perspective, you know, Barnett, he would start sponsoring a lot of figures over the years. And one of them was a guy named Brian Crozer who was a big guy in the UK, ties to MI5, MI6. He eventually became one of the chairman of the SoCal, which is a big, you know, kind of the far right's answer to Bilderberg group. Crozer was a big guy. He founded an institution called the Institute for the Study of Conflict, which, you know, kind of did a similar type of cyborg, anti-communist stuff in the UK that Barnett and the American Security Council were doing here. Two of the big financial sponsors for Crozer's efforts with the ISC were press barons. One of them was Sir James Goldsmith. Goldsmith was a huge guy in creating Euroscepticism in the UK. He funded the UK Independence Party in the 90s, and a lot of his former associates and colleagues were major sponsors of Brexit, including his son-in-law, Robin Burley. And then the other guy who was big sponsoring Crozer in the ISC, Rupert Murdoch, Fox hmm. News chairman who has certainly pioneered one of the most traumatic types of news coverage you can possibly imagine. Yes, yes. And it is just so weird lately how I've been feeling like in peacetimes, we know not to trust traditional news media, the CDC, who, the executive branch. We know that these people are always lying. We know that they don't care about human life with their drone strikes and their coups and all the stuff that they do. But then the shit hits the fan. We all go into panic mode. And these are the people who we suddenly start buying into hook, line and sinker. We start taking their exact advice. We start actually policing our neighbors on behalf of what they said. And it's like, well, did you forget this whole long history of these organizations? I'm sorry. It is unfortunate that we can't trust any of these institutions. All their credibility is shot. And we should have done something about it before we were in crisis mode, but we didn't. So you can't just turn around and say, well, on this thing, I trust them because it's new and fresh and scary. It's like, 
They don't have a legacy of trust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just really incredible. I mean, you would think that people would have learned their lesson after the, you know, Iraq 2 debacle and the alleged weapons of mass destruction, and then certainly after the 08 financial meltdown. But it seems like people are still going to try to cling to that reality that's parroted on the one hand in Fox, on the other hand with CBS or MSNBC or something to that effect. And, you know, I mean, it's a really tragic state of affairs because, I mean, Fox, you know, was really the kind of pioneer for this hyper sensational, almost traumatic type of news coverage, which has pretty much been adopted by all of the networks now. You know, I mean, it's almost totally flushed any semblance of objectivity down the toilet. And yet the public still wants to cling to it for some reason. <laughs> I know, man, I get so frustrated with it. But to hop back to UFOs, I also thought this was interesting. You did mention NICAP a little bit earlier, but to quote your book, you write, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, or NICAP, was the first large-scale civilian agency dedicated to the investigation of UFOs. From the late 1950s until its demise in 1980, NICAP was the cream of the crop in the civilian field. Nowadays, it's widely acknowledged that NICAP was heavily infiltrated by the CIA from its inception. Less well known is the fact that the American Security Council was also involved from the get-go. NICAP was founded by a man named Townsend Brown, a Navy veteran who had served under Admiral Arthur Radford. Radford, an eventual chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, would join the ASC and its National Strategy Committee upon his retirement from the Navy. Radford had supported Brown's research for years and had taken a keen interest in the UFO question himself. I'm interested in that because T. Townsend Brown, I mean, this is a guy who a lot of people put in a category with Nikola Tesla, that he was cracking the code of electrogravitic propulsion. And sometimes I just don't know. It's really kind of hard to parse exactly who the bad guys are when only one group of guys has really the resources for this kind of stuff. But it's interesting that he was kind of involved with some of these people. What are your thoughts on T. Townsend Brown and the work that he did? Was he a spook himself? Because I don't get those spook vibes. Maybe there were just spooks interested in him and swarming around him. Or maybe I'm being naive. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think he was probably more, you know, somebody that was being used or manipulated. And I mean, certainly that kind of seems to be a reoccurring theme with almost anybody who's kind of involved in this, you know, kind of Tesla slash alternative energy oriented research. But again, you know, there are several disinformation types involved in this as well, specifically Gina Puharic. But yeah, I mean, Brown was a guy too. I mean, he just seemed like, you know, a true visionary. But again, you know, it's also kind of understandable that individuals who are affiliated with a group like the ASC would have taken an interest in this type of research because it was so closely tied to the military industrial complex, defense contractors, and especially the aerospace industry as well. So, I mean, all of these guys, I think, would have also had a pretty significant, you know, financial stake in the type of things that he was developing as well. And this probably would have provided a compelling way to kind of keep track of some of the thoughts that he was developing by monitoring through a group like NICAP and that type of thing. Certainly, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. And the Mellon family did have 
a little bit to do with some of this, right? They were funding a decent chunk of it, just to bring it back to that first family we talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of Barnett's initiatives in the NSIC, the National Strategic Information Center, and then later Crozer stuff with the Institute for the Study of Conflict, almost all of that was funded by Richard Mellon Scafey, who's another really just fascinating figure. His father, Alan Scafey, of course, had been an OSS officer. And curiously, both Alan and his mother, Sarah Mellon Scafey, were investors in the World Commerce Corporation, which was a pretty spooky entity that had been set up by William Donovan and William Stevenson and a lot of other ex-spooks in the aftermath of the Second World War. In fact, pretty much everybody involved with it was ex-OSS or British Security Coordination or something like that. I mean, it really was a kind of early corporate intelligence firm. So, I mean, even with his kind of parents, you had this peculiar legacy. And then, of course, Scafey, you know, had outright sponsored CIA publications. I think it was like the World Future Forum or something like that. And then he had taken up funding so many of these initiatives that Barnett had started. And he's just another guy that's had so much influence on a lot of major public debates. I mean, an obvious one would be the abortion debate. He's really been one of the chief financial sponsors of the pro-life movement, which is kind of ironic because on the flip side of the coin, a lot of the other Mellon family members are big Planned Parenthood backers. So, <laughs> you know, you kind of have this you know instance of this one particular family that's really driving this abortion debate that's preoccupied the public so much since the 1970s, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. And then amusingly, Scafey was also the guy who sponsored the Clinton Chronicles as well, which really kind of, you know, established the mythos of the Clintons as the ultimate kind of Faustian villains or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yes. And it's odd why people would waste their money funding two sides of an argument like, you know, the family fortune. But I guess they just want to create division because I do know a lot of people, particularly back in Missouri, who will vote solely on this one issue. And it just drives me nuts because I'm like, look, you're not having kids anymore. You don't have to have an abortion. You don't know anyone having abortions. Why do you care so much about that as opposed to like how we deal with the rest of the world? The coups that are staged by the globalists, like, why don't you care about the people that are alive that don't have any kind of safety net that are just, you know, dying on the streets? Why don't you care about really anything? It's just an odd thing to care about hypothetical lives that probably wouldn't have the best upbringing. I mean, I don't even want to really get into it necessarily, but it is just a weird thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that this kind of seems like it's part of a coordinated elite agenda in a lot of ways. I mean, of course, this kind of thinking really went back to, well, I mean, it goes back earlier, but I mean, really in the post-war years, I mean, the Mont Pelerin Society was a big one. And this is where mostly a bunch of economists, more conservative leaning, you get the Austrian school, the Chicago school. And this is really where the modern ideology of neoliberalism originated from as well. But essentially, you know, these guys were obsessed with the notion of a double government, if you will. And on the one hand, you would have a part of the government that was basically concerned with social issues that generally elites considered to be meaningless, but they would be great for a public debate and you could have democracy in this sense and so on and so forth. And then you would have another government. And this would be the part of the government that was chiefly concerned with wealth, with military functions, and specifically with the orientation of the economy 
and things that were meaningful to the elite, things that conferred power to them. So, you know, I mean, that I think is why when you really get down to it, things like the abortion debate are continuously pushed on us and really the gun debate for that matter, too. I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, in the 21st century, an assault rifle is not going to stop some of the super weapons that the U.S. military is sitting on. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody at the upper echelons of power really cares one way or the other about abortion or the gun issue or probably transgender rights or anything like that. But, you know, it galvanizes the public. It's a great way to keep people fighting amongst themselves over issues that are not going to ultimately increase their standard of living or the political power or anything else that has any real significance. Right, right. Very well said. And to switch gears a little bit here, I'm also always interested in places where we see the occult spill into the political spheres or just general rings of power. And I know that you're interested in that kind of stuff as well. And in this book, you write about a figure I don't think I'd heard of before. He sounds sort of like an Italian Aleister Crowley with one foot in the occult (laughs) and one in some kind of spycraft sort of stuff. You refer to him as the Sith Lord. He's got a long string of names, but let's just call him Julius Evola. But what can you tell us about this Evola guy? Yeah, he really was very much a Crowley-like figure. In fact, I mean, I would probably argue he was the other preeminent magician of the 20th century next to Crowley. And there was just a lot of bizarre overlap between them. I mean, they also were both obsessed with mountaineering and so forth. And then there's kind of the bizarre, I don't know, kind of synchronicity with their deaths. Uh, Of course, Crowley died in 47. Evola died in 74. And, you know, both of those years are also of a lot of, you know, kind of interest to synchromystic types like myself and what have you, of course. 47, you know, you had the emergence of the national security states and all kinds of other crazy stuff. 74, you had Watergate, the first kind of public revelation of the Nine and Puharic's Yuri book and all that good stuff. But in terms of Evola, you know, the Italian philosopher, occultist, he had originally cut his teeth with the Erg group in the 1920s. And, you know, there was a lot of interest in Mithraism. I know specifically was that the great magical Papyrus of Paris was a big text that they were quite taken with, which I know Knowles has spoken about. It was essentially an account of tripping balls or something to that effect. And then you see a lot of the other kind of touchstones like scrying and that type of thing that show up. But in terms of Evola's system, it was very heavily influenced by Hinduism and the caste system. And his take, essentially, it would be the warrior caste that would have been at the highest level rather than the Brahmins, the priest caste. And that pretty much led to just an obsession with these kind of warrior brotherhoods, if you will, warrior monks. Of course, Evola was quite taken with the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitar, and all the, you know, I mean, revered medieval military orders and that type of thing. He really started to rise to prominence after Mussolini came to power. He had found fascism to be fascinating, but had ultimately begun to criticize it because he believed that Hitler and Mussolini did not go far enough. He was disturbed by their pandering to the trade unions and that type of thing. So it was definitely a very much an aristocratic system that he was promoting. Nonetheless, even though he did routinely criticize both regimes during the war, he did not end up in a concentration camp like so many others. In fact, He was later brought into the SS, another organization that he had been quite obsessed with. 
And specifically, he was put into the SD, which was their principal intelligence service. And that led to some interesting activities at the end of the war. He was in Austria and Salzburg. In 1945, the Red Army is surrounding Germany. The Allies are coming. And allegedly during this time, he's working on a book called The History of Secret Societies or something to that effect, which is just not a very believable story. I mean, you know, the Third Reich is literally collapsing before his eyes. I mean, he was reportedly paralyzed during this time from wandering through the streets of Salzburg as the bombs were being dropped and what have you. So, yes, there's been some theories about what he was actually up to. And I think the great Kevin Coogan, who sadly recently departed us, really had the best take on it. And that is the fact that he had been tapped by the SS to develop a pan-European ideology that could revitalize a Nazi or fascist underground in the aftermath of the war, something that would be more inclusive to the whole of Europe and not, you know, just kind of focused on German supremacy or something to that effect. And, you know, it seems like he was very effective at that. You know, going into the Cold War years, virtually every major, you know, Italian neo-fascist terrorist at one time or other had been infatuated with his system. The really big, you know, militant organization was the New Order. The head of that was, you know, very much of an acolyte. And this was really the group that was, you know, a big part of all the Gladio efforts to destabilize Italy during the time. So, you know, I mean, that's something also, I mean, I would kind of point out with Evola's followers in comparison to Crowley's. I mean, Crowley tended to inspire a lot of bohemian types, a lot of artists and what have you. Evola's followers, you know, they were more concerned with the metaphysics of the submachine gun and the subway bomb and that type of thing. Certainly, it was a very just militant belief system, and it did inspire many young men to commit just absolutely horrendous acts of violence. Hmm. Damn, man, that's a pretty good summary. And you also mentioned that Evola gained some modern recent notoriety because he was name-dropped by Steve Bannon, and I'm wondering what context that was or what you think it might mean that Bannon would name-drop this guy, and I, I don't think I'd heard of him before. Maybe he's not super obscure, but it seemed odd. Yeah, well, if I remember correctly, Bannon had name-dropped him in the context of Dugan. Was it Alexander Dugan or something like that? Putin's alleged Rasputin. Evola was a part of this kind of ideology that's usually referred to as traditionalism, and it really spread, you know, in different sectors throughout the Cold War. In the UK, it had been a major influence in the National Front of Nick Griffin and that type of thing, but it really appears to have had a very prominent influence in Russia going into the 1980s, and, you know, Dugan almost himself comes off as an Evola-like figure in the sense that he had been using the works of Evola potentially to craft a new ideology, a kind of national Bolshevikism that could kind of fuel the underground after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Obviously, there's a lot of dispute as to just how much of an influence Dugan has actually had on Putin and the modern Russian state, but certainly it is known beyond a doubt that he did have ties to was it the FSB, the principal intelligence service of Russia now? And, you know, generally it's just a very well-connected individual. And, you know, it's possible that through that context, that's where Bannon had picked up on Evola's work. And, you know, you've seen this, you know, I mean, it's not just Bannon, obviously, in the alt-right that are quite taken with him. I mean, 
Evelis had a lot of influence on that whole, you know, dark enlightenment ideology. He's had an influence on, you know, Richard Spencer and some of these other types. So it's very much, I think, a kind of ideology that has fueled elements of the modern right. But, you know, Evelis' ideology is very elitist. It was never meant for the masses. Which is why I don't think that it's really very well known, you know. I mean, he wasn't trying to create a mass movement. He was trying to create an initiated elite, effectively, that could reorient society from the upper echelons of power. And I think now we're kind of just starting to see hints of that coming out and the extent to which his ideology has influenced the ruling elite. Hmm. Yeah, it's always interesting to see that occult crossover. It's there. People like to kind of deny it. But even though a lot of people are presented with these magical or occult ideas as if they're silliness and they don't put any stock in them because they don't have a paradigm that considers them valuable, you still got to look at what the elite are doing and who they're palling around with. Clearly, there's something there. Oh, absolutely. I think that's why Knowles has got that great saying on his blog. Millionaires believe in astronomy billionaires believe in astrology definitely in my research seems to be very much the case <laughs> yeah i actually think that is a jp morgan quote that goes millionaires don't believe in astrology billionaires do um at least that's how i heard it that it was a jp morgan quote but that makes it even more interesting but yeah you and chris are both some of the best at parsing through that and taking a look at it and saying, well, what does this mean? Because you could say during the Trump election in particular, there was a lot of occult context to it. It spawned the whole CAC QAnon thing, which is very heavily about codes and symbolism. So it's in the soup that got the guy elected. Yeah. And I mean, it's also, I think in a lot of ways too, I mean, it's a very modern occult take because like you're, you know, kind of getting at, I mean, a lot of this has its roots in chaos magic and meme magic. You know, I mean, I know there's kind of a tendency to, you know, reject all Trump followers as just being kind of inbred rednecks or something. But, you know, I mean, there is in my mind a certain sophistication to all of this, certainly more so than, you know, what you probably see on Gaia or something like that. I mean, I'm sorry for saying that, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, ultimately, though, I mean, they did get their guy in the White House. So I do think they really kind of tapped into the whole notion of public relations, essentially, as a kind of magical working. And, you know, that was really put very much in practice with a lot of this symbolism. On top of that, you kind of have the whole specter of the SCL group and Cambridge Analytica lingering behind this with the whole thing with Trump and Brexit. And then, of course, you have the kind of connections to that with Plantier and Peter Deal and his ties in turn to the Dark Enlightenment and a lot of the notions of mean magic and even Evola and what have you. So, you know, there is this line of succession from these cywar cabal type things with these companies to these more arcane sects, the Dark Enlightenment and that type of thing. And yeah, certainly it's been brutally effective in practice, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that stuff is on both sides. Got to acknowledge it, or there's going to be all kinds of comments. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. we very much know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But as we're starting to wrap this thing up, I know you're also working on an Epstein book, and we talked about a few 
Epstein-esque networks in this whole saga that you cover in the book. Is there anything that you found researching Epstein recently that's worth sharing? The fight for any real justice or pursuit of the larger network seems to have largely fizzled out, but are you still on the case? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no the Epstein thing has actually morphed into three books, actually. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, I was about into four or five chapters in the first book, and it was getting around 60,000 words. So I was like, oh, you know, if I tried to do this as a whole book, it's, what, going to be two or three times as long as Tragedy and Hope or something <laughs> like that. So in the effort to make it more readable, it was decided to break it down into three books. But, yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, some really just amazing stuff that's come out with this some of the things i'd already alluded to with resorts international and just the continuation of these networks and to me the big thing that really became evident while i was researching this is i wasn't just telling the history of the sex rings but i mean really the kind of covert history of the anglo-american establishment as well and it's really going to kind of chronicle this change that's gone through it over the years from this kind of you know un CFR type vision of the world to Trump and Brexit and what have you, and just, you know, how this change occurred over the decades from both the American and the British perspective. And, you know, certainly for me, that's been really one of the more interesting aspects has been researching the British deep state, because it's not really a topic I was very familiar with going into this. And certainly I don't think something that a lot of Americans were either, but it is a really fascinating topic and it was really just remarkable to see, you know, how persistent the Anglo-American establishment has been. And, you know, I think that is really relevant into the state of affairs we're getting to into the world now. You know, we might potentially be witnessing the final collapse of the EU with the COVID thing. The UK is out of the EU. There's been this ongoing discussions about trade agreements between the US and UK. I do think there are interests very much that would love to form the long-envisioned Anglo-American empire which would essentially become the new world order rather than some you know, UN world government thing with the chaos in the world that's going on right now. You know, I think that's a better possibility than a lot of people have ever imagined up to this point. And, you know, I think that's a big part of what Trump is trying to do with putting the pressure on China with the COVID thing. A lot of people would really love to break China down into smaller countries that would be much more manageable. And in a lot of ways, I would really kind of clear the playing field for this proposed Anglo-American union to emerge as the top dog with no real competition. So, you know, it's definitely going to be interesting how this goes forward in the coming months. And yeah, I mean, it is an unsettling prospect. But, you know, I've been saying all along Trump was put into power for two reasons. And I mean, that was to reorient American foreign policy away from Russia and towards containment of China on the one hand. And on the other hand, to essentially tear up the world order, the Bretton Woods Agreement and so forth that has dominated the world since the end of the Second World War, that's all being scrapped. And, you know, what we're seeing emerging now is definitely more in keen with a neo-medievalism, a neo-feudalism, call it what you will. But it's, I think, going to be a much more chaotic world and, you know, one potentially where we could see the dominant forces essentially merging as kind of neo East India companies. Oh. Certainly when you see something like Apollo Capital or Cerebus or something like that, you know, I mean, there's these massive financial institutions that are essentially holding companies. I mean, they control all of these other companies. And then on top of that, they've got their own private armies in the wings as well. So in a sense, I mean, this system is already waiting to go. You know, it just needs a further weakening of the international order 
and it's got the green light, so to speak. Mm. Wow, man. I think that's a great breakdown. You have a very impressive grasp on some of the stuff I consider the most complicated stuff to wrap my head around. And I guess as we're wrapping this up, obviously, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical is a great book. I really enjoyed it. You cover a lot of ground and a lot of complex and unknown history. I guess I would ask you as we're wrapping this up, what do you consider the most important threads or contributions that this book has made? What are you most proud of in this book? What does it add to the uh, general knowledge of the alternative scene? Well, I think definitely the contractors won. I mean, I was you know very pleased with the Colonia Dignidad one. I think really up to this point, it's the longest English language account of the colony that's been published up to this point. And certainly to give people an alternative to the colony that's not as reliant on Peter Lavenda. <laughs> I suppose I should be nice and not get into that. But anyway, um, <laughs> just really, though, the contractors one, because I do think to this day, people do tend to underestimate the influence a lot of this, you know, whole culture has had really going with the Joint Special Operations Command and then into the private military industry. You know, I mean, really throughout the Cold War and into the 90s, the special operators were pretty marginal figures in the grand scheme of things. But they become a major power center going into the 21st century. And now, you know, you have these guys controlling these vast multi-million, in some cases, probably multi-billion dollar corporations. And it's a very different culture than what the ruling elite historically were comprised of. You know, these aren't really guys that are coming from an Ivy League background from Harvard or Yale and, you know, working in Goldman Sachs or some other New York banking house. I mean, you know, these are guys who came up through the military ranks fighting in Yemen and Somalia and what have you. It's just a very different culture. It's a different mindset. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, you know, we're kind of struggling with this new ruling establishment that's begun to emerge in the 21st century and how it's reshaping the world order. Mm. Well said. And speaking of Lavenda, obviously he's known for some of that work. And, you know, I love Sinister Forces. I don't love TTSA. So I don't really know uh, necessarily what I think about all the things Peter Lavenda has covered. I think he's quite wise and has lived a hell of a life and is an amazing writer. Do you, without commenting on the man himself, I guess, do you have uh, an issue with the way Lavenda has presented the information about the colony in his accounts? Did you find something that you would present differently when you really dug into the research yourself? I mean, on the one hand, in terms of the colony and fairness to Lavenda, I mean, he was also working with the sources that were available in the early 90s. So, you know, obviously we know more now from Freedom of Information Act requests and all that kind of thing. But it does seem like he did struggle to put it into the broader international context. And, you know, just in general, when you kind of look on a lot of his research on the post-war fascism and what have you, there's not a lot of, you know, discussion about Le Cercao or some of these other groups that probably did wield a tremendous amount of influence. Another one, you know, kind of going back to that group I was talking about before is the Sovereign Order of St. John, where I know he has to know more about that group than what he's letting on because Carl Maria Stanley, one of the wandering bishops from the American Orthodox Catholic Church, we later go on to become involved with the Shikshini Knights of Malta, the Sovereign Order of St. John, and then he would break away and form his own SOSJ, 
He set himself up in Louisville, Kentucky, and he ended up ordaining David Ferry in this capacity, of course, the you know famous guy from the JFK assassination. So there's definitely some stuff going on there that, yeah, he's been playing close to the vest for what reason, you know, I don't want to speculate, but, you know, certainly I do find it a little disconcerting that he's involved in the association of former intelligence officers and specifically in that just bizarre Las Vegas chapter, which also features Richard Doty of the whole Benowitz affair. It's got Colonel John Alexander, he of the non-lethal weapons, and of course the one and only Colonel Michael Aquino, he of the Temple of Set, the Church of Satan, psychological warfare officer par excellence. So yeah, I mean, those are some interesting figures there and guys who have certainly just probably ravaged the UFO community for years now. So, mm-hmm. and now Lavenda's in here with TTSA and what have you, along with a Mellon family member, Christopher Mellon, another guy with intelligence ties. So, Oh, really? He's involved with TTSA? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's been one of the big spokesmen for it and what have you. And of course, his brother, Matthew Mellon, was the guy who had a heart attack a couple of years ago when he was on DMT or something like that, trying to clean up from his opioid abuse. But Matthew made a fortune in cryptocurrencies. He was actually the first Mellon family billionaire in, I think, a generation or something. But he was you know, tied into Peter Thiel and all these other guys as well. And then his brother, Chris, is involved in TTSA. You know, it's just a very <laughs> incestuous network, to put it mildly. But No, there are some very insidious people tied in with TTSA. And, you know, I love Lavenda. I mean, I would consider the Sinister Forces books to have just been an enormous influence in everything I've done. But I don't know what to make of this, you know, Las Vegas chapter of the Association of Former Intelligence Officers and some of the guys he's involved with in that group. You know, they certainly are rather nefarious individuals on any number of levels. Mm. Well, we'll leave it alone, but (laughs) either way, man, this has been a lot of fun. You just know so many names and connections that I could never keep straight in my stupid stoner head. So it is always a pleasure and super impressive. I'm glad you got this book out. Congratulations. It's a really tough thing to do. Remind the people where they can read your blog, find your social media accounts and pick up the book, all that good stuff. Sure. Well, obviously, there's the blog. It is visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. I've got links there where you can procure a digital version of Strange Tales along with Contact Them or Us, the first book written by my co-author, Frank Zero. Got a special pandemic bundle, I guess is what we're calling it right now for the COVID Mm -hmm. stuff. So you can get both of those books for the price of one physical copy of Strange Tales. But if you are so inclined for physical copies, as I myself would be, you can pick up a copy of Strange Tales on Amazon, like pretty much anything else. I'm also involved with my own podcast, which is The Farm. You can find us at thefarmpodcast.com. That's thefarmpodcast.com. That's all one word. And another project I got coming out in a couple of months, which I'm really excited about, is the Penny Royal podcast. That's kind of tied in with all the Hellier stuff. The Penny Royal guys actually appeared in episode eight, season two of Hellier. That's going to get into all the crazy stuff at Somerset. But Hellier is a little, you know, it's mainly more of a paranormal, you know, UFO, 40 and high weirdness take on all of that. Penny Royal is going to get into some of the parapolitics. It's going to get into all the weird stuff, too. It's just... I'm really excited about it. 
It's going to be an eight episode mini series for podcasts. It's going to have just really crazy stuff that we dug up with Kentucky. Among other things, you're going to see how the 2016 election really ran through Kentucky and Donald Trump's insane ties to the intelligence stuff and organized crime and what have you that was going on there. So, you know, that's hopefully going to be out in July and I'm going to write an essay kind of like the ones in Strange Tales that's going to coincide with it, that's going to have the sources for just all of this crazy stuff that we uncovered. So definitely, you know, keep an eye out for that. And in the intern, you can always check me out at the Visa blog or at the Farms podcast and definitely, you know, consider picking up a copy of the book. Obviously, a lot of people have got some spare time right now. So, you know, maybe give yourself a text that will help you understand the geopolitics that's playing out right now. <laughs> ABC, man, always be closing, <laughs> but I do like it. And we should all be doing stuff that we're passionate about. So I am excited to check out that podcast series. But again, this has been a lot of fun. This is really dense material and you break it down so well. So thanks for being as dedicated as you are. Thanks for your time and keep fighting the good fight. Take care, my man. Yeah, thank you again so much for having me on, man. I fought the law and the law won. THC appearance number three from our main man recluse. Dropping knowledge on elite families and military contractors and private security firms that we tend to forget about sometimes. Big congratulations to him again for getting a book completed. It is not easy and I do hope that he sees some success with it. I definitely like having it in my library and it covers a lot of hidden history that a person in my position can often use a reference for. And it's the kind of show I guess I'm looking to do right now. It's got context, which is helpful in assessing our current situation, but it's not so much about it directly, because I need a break. And I feel like we've covered this thing very thoroughly from several different angles and I don't really see a need for us to just keep repeating ourselves because the situation continues to go on. But I've always been impressed with Recluse's level of detail. He has a real knack for tracking associations and connections between these shadowy people and groups. Although I do find it curious how he manages to pronounce certain names sometimes. I do get it. He's a researcher who is constantly reading and writing. So sometimes you don't get a lot of opportunity to talk about the material. And if you're finding obscure names or details, you probably hear the names pronounced even less so. But it's just something I notice once in a while. And I have to take a second and think about it. And I'm like, oh, actually, I have heard of that name before. But still, to stay sharp as he does at that level of detail is very impressive. And he makes a lot of good points. Anybody should be able to understand that so much of what we see out there boils down to various companies and contractors and groups battling for influence, supremacy, and their share of public funds. Would military contractors perform domestic operations to make it appear that their services are in dire need? Of course they would. The same is true for the big influences in the medical and tech spaces, which seem eerily pre-prepared for a lot of what's coming out in the wake of this big virus scare. Easier to cut back on that funding when we haven't really had a problem in decades? A little bit harder now. 
And broadly speaking, I just think anytime a massive story comes out, a shooting, a bombing, a virus, whatever it is, you have to think with these incentives in mind. It sucks that this current situation has gotten out of control and that our institutions have no credibility and this legacy of manipulated events is so long and tense. It sometimes feels like all these different sectors are just taking turns slamming us with their bullshit. Like somebody rocking back and forth before they hop into a jump rope at the right time. Just jump in, jump out. Okay, now it's your go. And it's just a constant bombardment of behemoths gobbling up market share. It's like as soon as we get over one thing, something else crops up. But the silver lining, to me, the thing that calms me down, is that when you strip away the events that seem manipulated, the false flags, the planned shootings, the DC snipers, just all the shit that we deal with, and of course, some tragic things do just happen. Sometimes there really is no one in the driver's seat. But when you pull out the ones that do seem fishy, you're left with far fewer concerning events, like one in four. And then the world doesn't seem so scary. You think about all the millions of interactions on the street where everyone just goes about their business or better yet, even helps each other once in a while. And you can steady your breathing again. Things are clearly tense right now, but I think the only strategy is to go zen. I go back to the Jordan Peterson line about self-development where he says, strive to be the reliable person at a funeral. Work on yourself enough that you're mentally ready for everything. Pull yourself together, man, you know, and be gentle with people who might not be as open and aware as you are. Not everybody wants to hear theories right now. They just want a stable genius to lean on. I've seen a lot of strains on friendships because one person can't just shut up about the pandemic. I like to believe that outside-the-box thinkers have an advantage in times like these, but our tone and our humility and our empathy are the qualities that are going to determine how we're perceived. The system is painting anyone who has skepticism on this as a dangerous, right-wing, Trump-loving, classless, QAnon, teat-sucker, and our behavior is either going to validate that perception or it's going to further erode the credibility of the cable news narrative. Obviously, we can't control what other people do, and I'm sure there's always going to be an example that they can turn the cameras to that make us look uneducated, but it would be nice if just by observing some of us, it was obvious to the more conventional people in our lives that our worldview is serving us well in these times, and then it would start to look more attractive, not less. <sighs> I just said we're all probably sick of talking about it and then went on my little soapbox rant there, but I'm just trying to tie it all into the context that Recluse provides in his book and this interview. If you liked the first hour where we did get through a great deal of material, we got through just as much in the second hour. Things like the dark details of the colony, SAIC, other military contractors like them, and some potential domestic operations, DynCorp and the Trump administration, 
esoteric and mythological names of these companies, like that damn drug made by Gilead. And we also talked about COVID control and election suppression, the prospect of that second wave, and a lot of the economic games that are being played in the COVID chaos. So all good stuff, trying to bring you good stuff, well worth your money. Please sign up for Plus if you value this show. But other than that, I guess there's not a ton to say. I hope you're all staying safe out there. I hope you're all weathering the economic hardship well enough. And I hope you're starting to think about or have the conversation about how to be more self-sufficient, how to put yourself in a position where you could say, you know, you don't want to let me into a Walmart without the invisible tattoo. That's fine. I don't need anything from there. I've always talked about having one foot in, one foot out. It's getting a lot harder to keep that foot in. And I'm sure that's no accident. But other than that, I guess we have a few good shows coming up that I'm excited about. And we have a joint session on the 20th, so next week. And two episodes coming before the month ends. So I guess I'll just catch you then. I'm out of here. Big thanks to Recluse once again. I've done my part. Your move, conniving contractors, egomaniacal elite, and satanic security firms. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK Ultra's trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become Don't you see what's going on? Well, now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself I hope you know the elite aren't your friends They'll suck out everything from you in the end And if for some reason you think I might be wrong I wonder where you got that opinion from You gotta keep the curtains strong Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well you're not, you should tape the mail slot And baby if I seem withdrawn, let me say I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see
Out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. 